Would you open our eyes to behold wonders from your word? Would you plant the seed of your truth in us so deeply, so fully, and so richly that it sprouts life so that we become more fully the people in Christ you've always meant us to be? Thanks for your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Joyce Kilmer, famous for one poem singularly, it says, I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. He wrote some other poetry. This is the other, only one that's well known. Trees are a prominent theme in the scriptures. You know, from the very opening chapters of the Bible, the Garden of Eden, trees figure prominently, don't they? Uh, trees were, were part of our downfall. And when Adam and Eve are about to be faced by a holy God in their sinful condition, they take the leaves of trees to try and cover their shame, their deficiency. Further, it was on a tree that our salvation was purchased. And you get to the end of the Bible, Revelation, and it's trees again that figure prominently. They grow. The tree of life grows along the river of life that comes from the throne of God. Trees are a glorious, glorious part of God's creation. This spring, by the way, it's been a great spring. We've had lots of rain again. We've sort of had the normal mix of cool weather and warm. And so the trees have just been prodigious this year in blossoms. They've been glorious. Uh, one of my favorite sights in nature is the rising or the setting sun on trees, whether they're leaves or evergreens. You know, you get this great contrast between the darkness of the shadows behind and the leaves themselves. It's simply glorious. Trees have... They display the glory of God in a very unique way, in a, in a captivating way. Trees range in size and appearance like people do also. <clears throat> More so, really. Um, you know, we might be short or tall, but in the world of trees, you know, you could go from an ornamental tree that might be two or three feet tall to the granddaddy of the trees, which would be the California, the giant California redwood. Let me tell you about a couple of the California redwoods. The tallest tree in the world is in California, Redwood National Park. It stands 379 feet, 4 inches tall. Now, if I tell you 379 feet tall, you know that's tall. But just for comparison, put this, compare this to a few other things. In the scriptures, the, the cedars of Lebanon are repeated often because they were beautiful and they were tall and they were used for building. The temple, for instance. So these trees, the cedars of Lebanon, they grow only to about an average height of 130 feet. You could stack three of these on top of each other to get the height of this one California redwood. Or think of the Statue of Liberty. If you came in to the United States by way of New York and you saw the Statue of Liberty... The statue itself is only 151 feet tall. And then it's on a base, it makes it 305 feet tall. But this, this is multiple levels above that too. If you come into Topeka itself, you know, what does that look like? If you go to 6th and Kansas Avenue to the bank there, that building is 235 feet tall. That tree would dwarf the height of that building. So come across campus a little bit this way towards the Capitol building. Guesses on the height of our Capitol building? That is 304 feet tall. Now, I don't know if that includes the Indian or not. The Indian on the cupboard on our Capitol. But you see, you start getting a glimpse of how tall that tree is. 
if you stood it next to the Capitol Dome, it would tower above it. This is unbelievably tall. The glory, the grandeur, the stature of that single tree is absolutely mind-boggling. Now, that is the tallest tree in the world. But you know what? It's not the biggest as far as mass goes. That also goes to another California redwood called the Del Norte Titan. This one is in the Jedediah Smith State Park. These are in the sort of the north half of the California coastal area. Listen to this. This, this describes how big this one tree is. Its mass is equivalent to 15 adult blue whales. That's the largest animal on the earth. Each year this tree produces enough new wood to make a 90-foot tall tree with a trunk 12 inches in diameter. If all of this tree were cut into boards one foot wide, 12 feet long, one inch thick, the line of planks laid end to end would stretch over 100 miles and would build 120 average size houses. That's one tree. You know, if we were an elm or an oak, a pine or a fir, this kind of status or stature or grandeur or presence or glory of the California Redwoods would be to us unimaginable. The scale of difference between us, right? Be unimaginable. And yet the truth is, in the text we're in this morning, God talks about a transformation in you and me that's greater in scope and size, grandeur and glory than the difference between a little scrub oak here on the earth and one of those California redwoods. So we're going to be in Colossians 1 here, finishing up the passage of chapter 1 this morning. I'm going to read from the ESV. Paul's writing this church he's never met, never been here, and he's continuing. He wants them to see Christ in a way they don't at this point because other people have been telling them they need Christ plus something else. And he wants to lay that to rest. Starting at verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, to his saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him, or Christ, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me. We're going to look at verse 24 first before we get into the gist of the message this morning. Has to do with Paul's take on suffering here. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. Most of us, when we read this initially, it sounds as if Paul's saying there's something lacking in the once for all atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. What's lacking in Christ's suffering? We don't want to be confused on this point. Paul's not saying anything about Jesus' suffering, His atoning work, on our behalf. 
He's identifying Christ here with the church. Christ, the head, with His body, the church. And along that line, Paul says basically something like this. The church has been given a quota of suffering from God. God's plan, God's design is that you and I, the church of Jesus Christ on the earth, we are called to suffer. It's like a quota. And he says, I'm drinking up more of that cup of suffering than would normally be my fair share. I've been called to suffer. You've been called to suffer, Paul says. No lack in Jesus' offering. The whole letter tells us, no, the offering was adequate. No lack in the offering of Jesus. Paul says, I'm filling up what's lacking in the suffering that goes on amongst the church, the body of Christ today. You remember in the Gospels, Jesus says, if all men speak well of you, you're probably doing something wrong. If you and I don't suffer, it probably means we're not actually Christ or displaying Christ or talking about Christ the way He means us to. Because we're called to suffer as Christians. We suffer in life anyway, but called to suffer as Christians. And Paul says, basically, I'm taking that cup of suffering and I'm drinking more than otherwise would be my fair share. I'm making up the lack of the suffering that the church, by God's decree, is meant to experience. From Paul's first day as a Christian, you go to Acts 9, you see the conversion story. God's talking to Ananias and He says, hey, go to Saul of Tarsus, share the Gospel, and baptize him. You know, and Ananias has a problem. Lord, do you know who he is? Do you know what he's doing? You know, and the Lord says, no, I know. This is what I want you to do. In the context of that discussion, God tells Ananias, I will show him, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul suffers all over the place. You read the epistles, you read Acts. Paul is suffering all the time. But God had told him from the start, you're called to suffer for my name. So Paul has no mistake in his mind, his thinking or his notions that this is abnormal. From day one, God says, you're going to suffer for my name. If you go to Jesus and His own followers, the last night He's with them before His death, John 15.20, Jesus says this, the world will treat you the way it treated Me. If I suffer under the rule of the world, you as My followers will too. If we are Christ followers, Jesus says we will suffer for His name. Called to suffer. You go to 1 Peter... Peter knew something about suffering as well. And in his first epistle, both in chapters 1 and in chapter 4, he says the same thing again. We as Christians are called to suffer. In fact, so much is that the case that Peter says in chapter 4, don't think it's some strange surprise. Don't be surprised when suffering comes your way. You're called to this. Usually for us, when suffering comes our way, we do exactly what he says don't do. We're surprised and we're trying to figure out what we did wrong. You know, oftentimes, don't you find I did the right thing and what did I get for it? Trouble. Suffering. You know, and I say right on, keep at it. That's evidence. That's testimony. You're doing something right. If we lack suffering, it probably means we're not fully sold out to Christ and His cause. So there's no ambiguity in the New Testament. Christians are called to suffer. If you hear someone preaching a gospel that says Christians are not called to suffer, it is a false gospel 
you may turn and go someplace else. That's not where you want to hang your hat. We are called to suffer, and Paul knew that. Suffering also produces some good things in us. We're not going to talk much about suffering this morning, but one example, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, when we suffer, we get the benefit of God's comfort to us in the suffering. We learn God's comfort through our suffering. And having learned something about God's comfort, we have something to offer others when they're in their suffering. We've received something because we suffered. We have that to give to others. But also in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says that temporary sufferings here end up producing this incomparable weight of glory for us in the future. You know that in heaven we're going to be given rewards. And those who suffer greatly in Christ's name and Christ's cause are going to have great rewards in heaven for that suffering. So Paul says here, not only do we gain Christ's comfort when we suffer, but we are, as it were, building up a bank account of glory in heaven because God will reward us for suffering shame for His name and His sake here and now. So Paul says, no bones about it, Jesus' suffering on our behalf, absolutely full and adequate. But Jesus has called us to suffer with Him. And Paul says, that's what I'm doing in spades. So we don't want to be surprised when suffering comes our way. That is the normal Christian life. Now, moving on to the theme for this morning, uh, paraphrasing through verses 25 through 27, Paul says there, I'm a servant of God to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden. So the mystery is God's Word. It's been hidden for ages and generations. It's now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known, this is His Word, this is the mystery, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery. And the mystery is Christ in you the hope of glory. The mystery is Christ in you, and that mystery, Christ in you, is your hope of glory. We haven't got to chapter 2 yet, and I keep referring to it, but it's in chapter 2 that we learn what the heretics in Colossae are teaching. And they're saying something like this. There are secret levels of knowledge to ascend to in the Christian spiritual life. There are mysteries to apprehend that require that you fast and pray to the right angels and celebrate the right days in the right ways. There's this hard, gritty work you've got to do. Think of Martin Luther crawling on the steps in Rome. There's hard, ascetic kind of work you've got to do before you're going to be introduced to the secrets that God holds out for the select few. The mysteries... God will make known to you only through this means. And in this era of history and before and after, mystery religions were common. They were all over the place. And this was always the theme. Only a few get to know the inner secrets. Only a few, you know, the ones that hang around the longest and do the right things and jump through the right hoops. They're the ones who get to know the secrets of God. And in the Greek, Paul says that is Baloney. That's the Greek, the original Greek. It's baloney, or it's close. It's 
close, I think. My pronunciation might be off slightly. Yeah, baloney. So, the mysteries others are seeking for, searching after, Paul says, I'm declaring that to you now. In biblical parlance, a mystery is not something that we follow clues to find. That's the way we typically use it today. A mystery in the Bible is something that God has to tell us or we won't know it. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, the place you'll see the same term or its equivalent of mystery is in the book of Daniel. And why is that? Because in the book of Daniel, God is revealing his mysteries to Daniel, his prophet. God's telling him what's going to come in the future. The Gentile nations and the order of the history of the world, that was a mystery. Daniel couldn't know that and Nebuchadnezzar couldn't get that from his dreams unless God told him. So a mystery is something God tells us. If he doesn't tell us, we don't know it. Christ in you, Christ in us was the mystery because God had not made this known, certainly not clearly in the Old Testament Scriptures. So, just think for a minute. Walk with me through a minute through some of the Old Testament. God had promised the Jews His covenant people. We're going to enter a covenant. And He told them, I'm going to dwell with you. It'll be like side by side. I'm going to come down and I'm going to live in the midst of you, not in you, but in your midst with you. And so, of course, what happens? They build the Ark of the Covenant. And when there's a tent in the wilderness, that tabernacle, there's a holy of holy places. And there's God. There's God in this cloud of glory above the, in the holy of holies above the Ark of the Covenant. So you see, God was living with them. And when Solomon builds the temple, it's a glorious passage where the glory of God comes down and it fills the temple so fully The priests have to get out. But that's God in the temple. That's God with them. That's not God in them. You think even of the incarnation. So you go to Matthew 1. Matthew quotes Isaiah 7 when he says, A virgin will conceive and she'll she'll bear a son and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God is with us. That's the ultimate fulfillment, if you will, of that promise. God with us, that was the incarnation. Jesus was with us, but that's not God in us. That's not Jesus in us. The mystery, the declaration from God to the saints of the New Testament era is that Christ is now in you, and that was not true before. This is a quantum change from the Old Testament. Go to John 14, 17, and Jesus is talking to His disciples. Now remember, they have cast out demons. They've been with Jesus for three plus years. They're saved. They believe in Him. To them though, Jesus says, He refers to the Holy Spirit here. He says, you know Him. You know the Holy Spirit because He dwells with you. But He will be in you. See, this hadn't happened before Acts 1. This was not true before Acts 1 and the birth of the church. Verse 18, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. So he says, I'm going to physically go back to heaven. But I'm going to come to you in the presence, the person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's been with you, but now He will be in you. This is going to be a change, a big change. 
So, the mystery, the Colossian heretics are fasting for, dreaming about, praying to angels for, Paul says was basically the simple Gospel message. That to believe in Christ meant to be not only forgiven your sins, but it meant to become the very dwelling place of God. God's temple on earth after Pentecost is no longer a building. It is individual believers and it is corporately the church, the body of Christ. This was entirely new. So the mystery is Christ in us. God is in us. Now, the mystery goes even bigger because if you said this to a Jewish audience, it would still be a big jump from what they'd known in the past. I'm a Jew. I, I believed in Messiah. I've worshipped at the temple. And God's been with me, but now He's going to be in me. That would be a mystery and that would be good. But if you were a Gentile, that would be entirely unheard of. So part of the mystery here too is Paul is telling them the promise of forgiveness and restoration and Christ in you is not for Jews only. In fact, in this era, the promise applies more fully to Gentiles than to Jews. Paul says in Romans 11, it's not that Jews aren't being saved, they still are. Ethnic Jews are still being saved. But they're disproportionately small compared to the number in the church. Part of the mystery was God is now in Christ saving Gentiles, not as Jews, as Gentiles. Again, we said Ephesians is a parallel uh, epistle to Colossians. You read about this there where Paul says God has broken down the barrier, the law that separated Jews and Gentiles before, and now Gentiles don't have to become Jews to come into this living relationship with the Messiah, with God, and have His Spirit within them. The mystery, Paul says, is no mystery at all. Well, at verse 27, Paul says this mystery, which is Christ in you, is the hope of glory. Is your hope of glory. If you look at this word glory... In the Old Testament, it's almost always the same Hebrew word, and it's kavod. Kavod. And it literally means that something is heavy. Glory in my mind and heavy don't go together. Maybe they don't in yours either. Uh, something is heavy. It, it has mass. It's significant. He's a heavy person doesn't mean he's overweight in this sense. It means he's powerful. He's significant. He's adequate. He is, in a word, He is glorious. He's substantial. You know, in mass, in physics, mass uh, gives the, the attribute of gravity. The more massive something is, the greater its force is to pull things in. Well, this has sort of that sense of it's massive and that means it's influential. It's significant. So glory in the Old Testament comes from a root word that means to be heavy in who and what we are. To be adequate. If you go to the New Testament, the word we translate to glory in the English is doxa. And doxa basically means a word or an opinion. And again, you say, how do we get there again? It's always used in a positive sense. 
So that if we talk about doxa, we're talking about something that is obviously praiseworthy. If I look at that giant redwood, you don't have to tell me it's glorious. I know it is as soon as I see it. It, I have a good opinion about it because of what I see to be true of it. That's the New Testament use. Paul says that Christ in us is the promise of our future excellence, our future significance, our adequacy, our magnificence. Christ in us is the absolute certainty that that will happen. The problem for us, and this is true of Christians uh, perhaps as much as it's true of anyone else, you know, ever since the fall, we know something is true about us that's problematic. And we know that we lack glory. Now, you can say this any way you want. We feel shame. We know we're sinful. We know we're not what we were meant to be. We know we're not who we were meant to be. We lack, in a word, we lack glory. That's our problem. That's the secret. And we do all kinds of things to try and cover that up. But we don't shine in the excellence of obvious glory as we should. And we know that. And that's our problem. And we can't stand. Sometimes we can't look in the mirror and not know. We lack glory. We feel inadequate if we stand amongst others. I wonder if they know I'm not that good a person, or I wonder if they know my sins, or that my skill level isn't very high. That's the sense. You know, ultimately we know, at least in honest moments, we couldn't stand before God. He's the only one that ultimately matters. Because we lack significance. Moral mass. Moral adequacy, moral glory. We lack glory. And it's into the darkness of that inglorious blackness of our hopeless hearts that God shines in the light of the glory of God Himself in Christ, in the proclamation of Christ, in the person of Christ. God's glory is made known. And what our first parents tried to steal from God in the Garden of Eden, to be like God and to share His glory, now God gives freely to His sons and daughters through simple faith in Christ. So the mystery is God would be in us through Christ, and Christ being in us means, it's a promise, that we're going to have a glory on display in the future that will be as obvious as Christ's own. As obvious as seeing those California giant redwoods. Your glory and mine as believers will be that manifest and that obvious. So for us, Christ is the end of the search for adequacy. If you remember back just a few verses, verses 15 through 20, Paul went at some length to make sure we knew who is Jesus and what is He. And so Paul said, Jesus is deity. He is the very God of very gods. He's the creator of the universe. He's Yahweh. He's Elohim. He's the God the Jews worship as the only God. 
He's the firstborn, meaning He's the heir of all things. That means Jesus gets all the stuff in the universe He gets. He sustains all things through His Word and through His will. Remember, He holds the universe together. He holds your life and my life together. He's the head of the body. Paul told all that earlier because when he says Christ in us is the mystery, he wants us to know what that means. If I understand that Christ is very God of very gods, that the fullness of God dwells in Him, that He's the Creator and the Sustainer, if you tell me that same Christ is now in me, my search for significance is over. I have adequacy. I have glory. I can't get any more glory than Christ in me. That's as good as it gets. So the mystery is Christ is in us, and because He's in us, we have a future hope of absolute eternal glory in the people that we are. Now the problem for us today is, if you make a promise that sounds too high and lofty, and you see no rationale, no reasonable reason to conclude that that's actually true, then you might say, you know, what gives? So if you say, wow, the glory of Christ in me or in you, and we might look at each other and say, I'm not seeing it. You know, I'm seeing some scrub, scrub oaks. I'm seeing some dwarf fruit trees. You know, but I'm not seeing California redwoods. And Paul addresses that. You know, at two levels... Ultimately, a hope in the Bible means it's not yet fully occurred. This is for us primarily future tense. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen at the parousia, the appearing of Jesus Christ. When He calls us, Paul says when we see Him, John says when we see Him, we'll be like Him. And Paul talks about this in Romans 8, even there as if we already have it. But our glory is absolutely certain in the future. It just hasn't happened yet. And a biblical hope is a promise God's made that has not yet been fulfilled. So primarily, that glory is future. But it's also present now. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians, which for him was a letter that was filled with the testimony of his own sufferings. And that was very, very intentional. For a group that was very proud about outward appearances, Paul's trying to get them to buy into... Uh, it's warm in here, isn't it? Can we, can, can we get the air on or the fan on or anything again just so the gals are a little bit more comfortable? I'm getting warm too. Uh, Paul wanted them to know that Whatever we have materially or, or in this flesh and blood body, that's not the glory of God. That isn't it. So he talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, he said, it was God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure. Paul says we have the treasure, we have the mystery, we have the presence of Christ's glory in us now in a jar of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's not that we lack entirely the glory of God in us now. Christ is in us. The glory of God is in us. 
but it's in these clay jars that are our humanity. And so the time when the glory of God in us is usually revealed is in our moments of suffering. It's when we're faced with issues and elements and situations in life that we are inadequate for. When the cracks show in our humanity, that's actually where the glory of God is seen. So Paul will say towards the end of that epistle, I'm glad when I'm weak, because when my strength is inadequate, that's when the power of Christ is revealed. So the glory is in us now. It's just sort of covered over with the clay shell of our humanity. But at the resurrection, at the parousia, when we see Christ, this clay body, it's done with. And then we will see the full-blown glory that is ours in Christ. You know, too, think of this. C.S. Lewis talked about this. God is addressing us now as His children with the life of Christ in us, with the glory of Christ in us right now. He's addressing us in that way right now. Wouldn't it be nice if we treated each other in light of that now too? You know, I was one of several brothers and I had a younger brother that I and my brother siblings treated mercilessly. Not even funny. I, I, seriously, I'm ashamed of the way I treated my brother when we were kids. Absolutely ashamed. But I didn't get ashamed until I'd grown up. And I look back, and I, as I treated him as an adult now and see him face to face, sometimes I'll still get a pang of I can't believe how cruel I was to my brother. Absolutely cruel. Evil. Wicked. You know. Wicked. Uh, <clears throat> well, can you imagine seeing each other, our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends, the people we go to church with, in the future, if we could see them in their glory in the future, would we be embarrassed about the way we treated them here? Do You see, the only difference is that we can't see the glory of Christ because of the clay shell, but it's there. And the full-blown stature of their glory like those redwoods, you're going to know it as soon as you see them in heaven. Wouldn't it make sense if we treat each other now in light of that future glory because Christ is in us right now. So the way we treat each other as Christians, as believers, that is the way we're treating Christ. You can't get away from that. It's the way we're treating Christ. So there's no ambiguity here. Christ is in us. That's the mystery. That's the thing everybody wanted to know. You've got it. Christ is in us. And Christ in us is the promise of the fulfillment of this future glory when the book of daniel winds down in daniel chapter 12 daniel has been told mysteries all this stuff is going to happen this is what it's going to look like and daniel knows these things are going to transpire after his life is over he's going to go rest in the dust of the ground with all of his generation but this is what he's told those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. See, Daniel was being told, Daniel, you belong to Yahweh, to the Messiah. 
And you and those like you who follow Him and serve Him here, you have an eternal future glory that here is compared to the glory of the stars. That you'll shine in the firmament of the heavens like the glory of the stars. It's a given. That's you and that's me. We have a future glory. It's absolutely certain. It simply hasn't been fulfilled at this point. If it's true, we've got a future glory that's tied to our resurrection. You and I have nothing to do about that. We don't control that in the least. But because the glory of Christ is present in us now, is there a way for us to gain a little bit more of that glory? Is there a way for us to grow a little bit in that glorious stature that will be ours in the future? Is there anything we can do on this end right now in this lifetime that would lead us at least a few steps towards that future glory? And you know, Paul says that there is. He says in verse 28, Him, that's Jesus, Him we proclaim. Jesus we proclaim. That's primarily the Gospel. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom for this purpose, to this end, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's goal for saints on the earth in this lifetime is that they might be mature in Christ. Mature in the language of the Bible means, uh, sometimes you'll see actually it's translated perfect. And you and I look at each other and we say no one's perfect. And that, that's true because it's not used in that sense. But it means that maturity or perfection in this sense means it's the full-grown version of what God's called us to be. Uh, the, the word has to do with the end of a thing. You get to the end. So these trees, they're sort of the pinnacle of their growth, those California redwoods. They've become what they were always meant to be. They're at the end of their cycle of growth. Well, Paul says, I'm proclaiming and warning and teaching towards people, saints, becoming the full-grown version of themselves God means them to be on this earth. And the way I do it is I proclaim Christ, I warn in Christ, and I teach Christ. So we have the glory, we can move towards that maturity, and we do it as Paul did, through pro proclamation of Christ, warning Christ, and being taught in Christ. If we want, if you say, what difference does this make? <clears throat> you know if you teach, you're supposed to get to the application. You're always supposed to, what, what difference does it make? What do I do with this? You know, I'm I have very little application today, and for this reason. If Christians got hold of the truth that Paul presents here, you and I, our lives would be revolutionized overnight. And the church would be revolutionized overnight if we simply know what's true of us in Christ and follow through with just some of those implications. It's for lack of getting hold of this, guys, that we struggle with sin and insignificance and lack of direction. If we get a hold of this, we're ready to go. Whatever God wants us to do, we're ready. Like Paul was. You know, what do you want done? Let me add. It was because he knew this was true for him in his life. He knew this. You know, it's possible for us to know something and not know it. There's two words in the Greek, uh, gnosis and epinosis, or epignosis. 
And one has to do with knowledge by experience. You know, so you get to the Old Testament and it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's personal knowledge. You don't have to tell me that my wife's pumpkin pie tastes good. I know it. I know it personally. That's mine. You couldn't tell me differently. I'm there. Well, that's what Paul wants us to know here. The trouble for most of us is we say we know Jesus. We say we know the Scriptures. But more often than not, we haven't tasted so that we know and see. And Paul wants us to taste. He wants us to swallow it down so it becomes a seed in us that bears fruit. If we know this, it changes everything about the rest of our lives. So, if I want to have a deeper sense of personal worth in my own mind, you know, I know my sins. You probably know yours too. You know, they're all the time. If I need to know what my worth is before myself or before you or before God, I need to get a hold of this. I need to know Christ fully. Personally, if I want to experience more freedom from temptations and sins, the key remedy to that is to desire something greater than I do my temptations and sins. I can't desire Christ more fully than I know Him. You know, there's something to be said, as Bill was talking in Sunday school class this morning there's practical things we can do to avoid sin. But you know what? If, if you put a, a rotten meal on a plate, and then you put my wife's cooking on a plate next to it, and you said, Mike, which will you do, would you choose? I don't have a problem. I'm going to take this plate. Why? Because I know what's on it, because it's desirable entirely. You see, if, if I know Christ more fully... My affections are drawn to Christ. I don't have to manage my lusts if Christ is my desire. So the greatest way getting out of sin and temptation is to know Christ more fully. Then I don't manage my sin. I want more of Him because I know who He is. I know what He's like. If I want a greater sense of peace and joy, of purpose and adequacy... I need to know Christ more fully. By the way, how do you and I, how do we get more of Christ in our knowledge? One of the key ways would be just to read our Bibles, wouldn't it? And not just to read, but to meditate. And maybe not just to meditate, maybe to even memorize. You know, what does it take for us to know Christ more fully? That's what we want. I'm going to skip through for the sake of time here. When Paul, uh, Paul talks about knowing Christ more fully, teaching on Christ, he proclaims Christ, that's the Gospel. We should be doing that too, by the way, to others. We're not Paul, but we're called to share the Gospel with others. When he warns other people, I'll just point you to 1 Corinthians 6. Paul there makes the Corinthians aware that if I choose to practice immorality... I'm joining Jesus to a prostitute. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, you're the temple of God. Where you go, Jesus goes. You know, not only is it a great warning about sin and temptation to know that I should value Christ highly and therefore I don't desire lesser things, but when I sin, I take Jesus with me. 
That's why the Scripture says don't grieve the Holy Spirit and don't quench the Holy Spirit. Because God in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is in us. And wherever we go and whatever we do, Jesus is right there with us. On teaching, let me just wind down with this. On teaching Christ, you know, I can be entertained for hours with dictionaries. And some people don't think that's a good thing. It doesn't take much to humor me, you know. And when I read the Bible, I've got a big dictionary with lots of neat words and great stories and all kinds of great stuff. I can learn all kinds of stuff from the dictionary, sorry, from the Bible. All kinds of facts, you know, none of us will ever plummet the depths of the Bible in our lifetime. Won't happen. Can't happen. But if all we get is knowledge and facts and storylines, we've missed the whole deal. So in Luke 24, after the resurrection, when Jesus is walking with those disciples from Jerusalem to Emmaus, He goes back to the Old Testament Scriptures and He shows them Himself. This was me, and this was me, and this was me, and that was me. Because that's what they were supposed to get. When we read the Old Testament, we're meant to see Jesus. If we're reading our Bibles, if we're meditating or memorizing, we don't get Jesus, we've missed the boat. He says He teaches Jesus out of the Scriptures. Last book of the Bible, Revelation 19.10, John falls down before the glory of this angel. And the angel says, don't do that. I'm not God. But he also says the spirit of prophecy is the testimony about Jesus. If I get caught up in timetables and charts more than I do with Christ, I've missed the boat again. Prophecy about Jesus. Paul says we teach Jesus. So the mystery, Paul says, that used to be hidden is no mystery at all. When we proclaim the Gospel, the message about Christ, that is the mystery. Christ in us, the hope of glory. God is taking the scrub oaks of the earth, that's you and me, and He's turning us into those giant redwoods. He is planting towering titans who are filled with His glory. It's not obvious now, but it's a promise that a God who cannot lie has made to us. Christ in us. There's a glory there now. There's a future glory that will be unmistakable. Father, would you make the reality of the presence of Christ in us as individuals and as your church uh, so manifest, Lord, so real, so fully known that it transforms our life. Father, would you help us to value your Son as fully as you do and valuing Him, Lord, might you be glorified and honored in us and in your church. Amen.